Before we jump into the episode, we wanted to let you know that we have some awesome events coming up over the summer. On the 19th and 20th of August, we will be in attendance at the Dark History and Horror Con, which is being held in Champaign, Illinois. Now, this is a great event, and if you live in the Chicagoland area, it's a really short drive to experience an amazing lineup of actors, speakers, podcasters, and vendors that will definitely scratch your itch for all things horror and true crime. Then, over the week of the 26th through the 28th of August, we will be in attendance at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Dallas, Texas. This particular event is our favorite podcast event. There will be a veritable who's who of podcast creators in attendance, and it will give you the opportunity to get truly up close and personal with many of your favorite podcast creators and so many goodies to be had from all of the shows. We will be doing two panel discussions during that weekend. One with Josh Hallmark of the amazing True Crime Bullshit podcast, where Josh has been absolutely picking apart serial killer Israel Keys for five seasons. I will be taking an even deeper dive into Israel Keys with him, which I'm really, really excited about, as Keys was a terrifyingly meticulous killer. And Josh has dove deeper into this guy than anyone else on the planet. We'll also be conducting a panel with Charlie Worrell, the creator of Crime Lines podcast, which is one of my absolute favorite pods. And Charlie is one of my absolute favorite people. We will be diving into how domestic violent cases are handled and reported on by the mainstream media. We will have links to the tickets for both events in the show notes for the show. So be sure to get your ticks so we can have some quality hangs this summer. We're also working on getting some live events planned out, and we'll be updating you shortly on the particulars once we get those dates in stone. Now, let's get back to it. So when I decided that Anthony Garcia would be the focus of the second season, the toughest thing for me to figure out was determining how to tell the story in an even-handed fashion. But the biggest challenge was to determine just how exactly I should handle the commissions of the crimes themselves. With the Hunter and Sherman killings, the timeline as to when those occurred was very clear, and it was not an issue that was in dispute at trial. The only issue for us as the defense attorneys was just who exactly was the killer's target. Was it Shirley or was it Thomas? Now, remember that these horrific crimes took place some five years before we became involved in the case. So when we finally got involved, OPD had been trying to solve those cases for a very, very long time and had come up empty. As I've explained to you in the Gacy tape season, that law enforcement typically does not stop investigating and trying to collect evidence once an arrest is made. Although with Gacy, that was exactly what happened. But that was for a myriad of reasons, with the primary one being that neither the city of Chicago nor the Chicago Police Department had any desire to find any more Gacy victims beyond the 33 that were ultimately attributed to the creep. This is, of course, unacceptable, and has potentially left Gacy's victims' families blowing in the wind some 43 years later, still wondering what has happened to their loved ones. Now, we'll be picking up where law enforcement dropped the ball in part two of the Gacy tapes, but that's for another day. With respect to the Garcia case, law enforcement continued to investigate long after Garcia was in custody, all the way up until the start of the trial. Which brings me back to my original point, which was, how do I tell you a story where when it comes to the second set of murders that occurred in May of 2013, the state and the defense had very different theories on the timelines of the killings? Now, don't worry, I'm not jumping ahead in the narrative here because we have not arrived at the murders of Mary and Roger Brumbeck yet. But I want to address the challenge presented to me personally I have very strong opinions on when the killings may have occurred, and which are vastly different from when the state believes that the Brumbecks were murdered. Remember that both sides in a criminal trial develop a theory of the case. And as such, it's important for you as listeners to remember that we as the attorneys are using the evidence that has been collected in order to develop those theories. As far as the state is concerned, With the arrest of my client, they effectively painted themselves into a corner as to when they had to have the murders take place. Because if in fact they occurred at any other time other than when they posited them as occurring at trial, 
Due to the other evidence that you will soon hear, Anthony Garcia would have had a seemingly bulletproof alibi. So therein lies the rub. When we started this season, we promised that we would tell you the state's case in full as it was presented to the jury. We also promised you to give you the defense's full theory of the case. So in essence, the issue that we are presented with is that we have two very different endings to one horrific story. So after much thought, what we believe is the best way to accomplish this is that when we get to the Brumbeck killings, is that we will have the narrative take both diverging paths. So ultimately, we will be telling you the same story from two very different points of view. Now, we're telling you this now because, well, it's been on my mind as I've been drafting the narrative. And I want you to be prepared for it as opposed to being confused by it when we get to it in the very near future. Remember, this is a first-hand account from the trenches of this case. We are beholden to no one as far as the facts are concerned. I will never have to wonder aloud what the defense was thinking about at a certain juncture of the case. The only thing that I need to make sure that you understand is that every case that goes all the way to trial, that there are always two sides to the story. And it will be completely up to you at the end of the day to decide which version you believe is the truth. Yeah, good luck with that. Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is Episode 8. Two swabs, two scrapes. We left off with the Omaha Police Department continuing its investigation into the Dundee killings. At this point in time, they are still trying to determine a motive, which is becoming an increasingly elusive challenge for them. There are only three possible scenarios as far as they are concerned. And if you're sitting at home asking yourself, well, Bob, what are those scenarios? Well, I'm glad you asked, because it's your favorite time, and it's my favorite time. It's how the state develops its theory of the case time. Now, before a case lands on the DA's desk or the state's attorney's desk, depending on what county you're in and what jurisdiction, the cops have to develop their own theory of the case in order to try to investigate it and ultimately to make an arrest. And that is exactly what is going on here with the Hunter and Sherman killings. First potential theory of the case is that Shirley Sherman was the target and that someone had a serious axe to grind with her. This theory requires the premise that the killer or killers had the forethought to kill Shirley while she was on the job in order to make it appear that she was not the target, but instead was merely collateral damage. What this means is that the killer would have had to have known two things. One, Shirley's schedule, and two, the addresses of the homes that she was cleaning on any given day. A potential individual who has knowledge of those two necessary facts would seemingly narrow the field of potential suspects to someone who knew her personally, as nothing else makes sense if we're to believe that Shirley was in fact the target. Now, the second scenario is that Thomas was the target. And if such is the case, we are talking about a child killer, which is a different type of beast altogether. Because in general, the premeditated, unjustified, intentional taking of a human life requires a certain level of thought in order to plan and execute it successfully. And when I say thought, I'm speaking of twisted, warped thoughts because there is always time when it's not a killing that occurs in the heat of the moment to think better of what they are planning on doing. So for an individual to premeditate the killing of a child, in my opinion, that person is a whole different level of damaged because I am hard-pressed to think of any set of circumstances wherein an innocent child has done anything during the course of their young life that would drive someone to the point that they felt that they had to take a child's life. 
That being said, if Thomas was the target, that brings up the sexual predator angle. However, here, according to the autopsy, there was no apparent evidence of a sexual assault to either Thomas or Shirley. So that possibility seems highly unlikely. So if the sexual predator angle is not a thing, then they have to look at the remote possibility that maybe Thomas had done something to someone that drove them to kill him. As unlikely as that seems, it will be something that OPD will have to look into rather diligently in the months to come. Now, finally, there is the possibility that someone is taking the revenge out on either Claire or Bill Hunter by doing the unthinkable, which is to kill their youngest child. Now, as incredulous as that seems, this exact possibility has been presented to the Omaha Police Department by a staffer at Creighton who has given them a list of former students that potentially could be holding a grudge against either Bill or Claire. Does there exist a scenario in which someone losing their job drives them to the point that they are killing an innocent child? As far-fetched as that may seem, Omaha PD is in no position to discount the theory. So it will be looked into, with their sights almost exclusively being trained on an individual named Michael Belenke. So if the cops can't come up with this scenario or a theory of the case wherein Shirley is the target, and they're also unable to come up with a theory of the case wherein Thomas is the target, they are left with the third scenario, which is that neither Thomas or Shirley were the targets, but instead, they were killed randomly or by someone who had mistaken them for other people. Now, the drifter-slash-random-killer theory seems to be the most unlikely of the three scenarios, And Omaha PD needs to hope that that is the case because those are by far the most difficult cases to solve. Now, looking at all the evidence or lack thereof that was left at the crime scene, what seems abundantly clear is that this was not a home invasion or a burglary that had gone horribly wrong. The fact that Shirley answered the door would have caused any potential intruder whose intent was to burglarize the home to abort the mission. This coupled with the fact that it does not appear that anything of value was removed from the house leaves only the possibility that the killer was either confused or was misinformed as to the identity of the victims. It is under this theory under which a man named Adrian Lepore, who has popped up repeatedly on the tip line, someone who strongly resembles the composite sketch, would fall under. So that's where OPD is currently at. And it's time to find out what they learn. So lesson over, and let's dig in. On April 1st of 2008, OPD gets their first opportunity to interview Claire Hunter. Officer Linda Yetz, yes, the same one who's been so busy, and Detective Mark Watson drive over to the Hunter's home. And Claire Hunter invites them in. The three take a seat at the kitchen table in the very home where Tommy had just lost his life weeks earlier. Now, I can't imagine how that would feel as a parent. This is their home of 20 plus years. Every nook and cranny is filled with the happy memories of their children's lives and accomplishments. And all of it was shattered on one horrible afternoon. As the hunters continue to try and move forward with their lives, I've personally often wondered if I would be able to do so if I continued to live in the home where my child had met such an awful fate. Part of me thinks that I would stay, so that every time that I walked through my front door, I would think of my child. Not that any parent would ever forget, but to remain in the home would keep all of the joyful memories at the forefront of my mind. I think that all of us, with our initial instincts, would think, absolutely not. I'd sell the house as soon as humanly possible. I'm not sure there exists such a clear-cut answer. Obviously, we all process pain differently, and I'm not so sure that running from the nightmare is the right answer. I truly hope that none of us are ever in such a position, and for those of you out there that may have suffered through such trauma, I hope that you have found some semblance of peace, no matter which way you have come about it. Now, we can only presume that Claire has been dealing the best she can with the horrors that have been presented to her. 
But it's now, at this time, that she's finally ready to talk to the cops. So Yetz and Watson begin by asking Claire to describe Tommy's relationships with her family. Claire tells them that Tommy was the closest to his oldest brother, Tim, who, quote, he worshipped, end quote. He also got along well with his middle brother, Robbie, and that his brother, Jeff, who was closest in age, was a typical up-and-down sibling relationship, as they would typically fight over the Xbox when Jeff was younger, or even now when he was home from college. Now, we have heard directly from Jeff, and we have a clear understanding of just how much he loved his younger brother, of which there is zero doubt. Claire describes Tommy's relationship with his father as they were buddies. She then explains to both the officers that she has had an incredibly close relationship with her son because he was the baby of the family. And if she was out of town for work, that she would talk to him every day while she was gone. She absolutely adored him. So at this point, the officers then make a strange inquiry of Claire, and they ask her if she knows why Tommy had been wearing multiple pairs of underwear at the time of death. Now recall during the autopsy, it was declared that Tommy had indeed three pairs of underwear on. Now, this question at this point by law enforcement seems off-putting and a little bit strange, but the answer as to why they're asking it will become clear in the very near future. Claire explains that since the time that Tommy was born, that he didn't have a bowel movement for his first 10 days of his life, and that ever since, constipation has been an issue for him. Notwithstanding that, the family has dealt with the issue, and Tommy commonly took a mild laxative for relief. The multiple pairs of underwear, she tells the police, is in the event that he ever has an accident at school. Both cops, feeling somewhat awkward, that they had to ask, quickly move on to a different subject. Detective Watson then asks Claire if she felt that Tommy would have answered the door on the day of the murders. Claire immediately informs both of them that Tommy had been told on numerous occasions that he was never to open the door or answer the phone if his parents weren't home. Watson counters, knowing that Derek Moise was firmly entrenched in believing that it was Tom that had opened the door as opposed to what Paul Medine had told the police about it being a woman that had opened the door. So he probed a bit further. He asks her, well, what if Shirley was there? Would he feel more comfortable about answering the door? Claire thinks about it for a moment and then tells them that it's possible, but it's not probable. Now, I wonder if these officers have kids that play video games because I know at my home, Getting my 10-year-old to put down her iPad when she's in the middle of playing Roblox or Minecraft or watching those bizarre videos of people opening toys is like pulling teeth. I never have truly understood as the case progressed, even when I had Moise on the stand for cross-examination, why he was so dead set on his theory that Tommy had opened the door. A theory which he developed before they had landed on a motive or even a suspect. I'm not sure that I ever got the answer to that question either. But one thing that I am confident about is that he is wrong. Paul Medine would have never confused a five-foot-tall, 11-year-old boy for a grown woman as he closely watched the stranger at the front door engaged in conversation on that day. Claire goes on to tell him that Tommy had friends in the neighborhood and he liked playing outside when the weather was nice and that he liked playing video games when he was stuck inside. That he was a very intelligent boy who enjoyed both computers and school. The cops then asked Claire about her trip to Hawaii. She looked down at her shoes and she thought for a long while before answering. She tells them we had gone to Hawaii as a family previously and Tommy had loved it there. But I told them that he had missed too much school because he had been ill and that he needed to stay back to catch up on his homework. So I just couldn't bring him. I called him every night that I was away from him. My God, what torture that must have been for Claire Hunter. If it were me in that scenario, I would probably think about that conversation for the rest of my days. Of course, no one ever expects something like this to happen to their child when they are gone. And I mean 
never. Yetz and Watson then ask whether Tommy had made her aware of any personal problems that he might be having at school or around the neighborhood. Claire tells them that he hadn't told her about anyone bullying him at school or at home or in the neighborhood. Claire was certain that if anything like that was going on, that Tommy would have told her or his oldest brother, Tim. She was equally confident that she would have noticed if there had been any changes in his attitude or behavior prior to the attack. They then ask Claire if Tommy had his own cell phone. Claire tells them that he did. She said he always answered his cell, but rarely answered the house phone. Watson then inquires about his online activities. Claire informs them that Tommy was very aware of online predators and that they had talked about the subject on many, many occasions, so much so that Tommy had done a school project on the subject. She knew him to be very savvy as to what could happen, and she believed that he always exercised the appropriate amount of caution with respect to his online activities. Yetz then asks Claire why Tommy had not been sleeping in his own room for the past couple of weeks. Claire smiles slightly, and then she tells them that he didn't like making his bed. And he didn't like the bunk bed set up in his room either because it was really hard to make the bed because he slept in the top bunk. So he decided to switch rooms until Jeff got home from college. They then ask her about when Tommy would stay home sick from school, whether Bill or her would stay home with him. She quickly tells them that they never left Tommy home alone when he was home sick, ever. Yetz asks her, can you think of anyone that would do this to your son? Claire tells her that she has no idea who would do this. Claire tells them that it's her opinion that whoever did this had to be somebody that knew Shirley. She tells them that Shirley had been cleaning their home for nearly two years and that she had been recommended by two of her doctor friends that had also used her to clean their homes. Shirley didn't like being called the housekeeper. She liked being called the cleaning lady because she liked to clean, she adds. Claire continues, Shirley was very good at her job. She came every Thursday and would typically clean for around four hours. She had missed some time recently due to issues with her family. Yetz inquires on whether she can articulate the problems Shirley had been having. I don't know if you investigated that, and, and as I reflect on it, um, she didn't show up for work two weeks in a row. And I rem- and I remember that, that she was going to the UK with her sister-in-law, which would be Shirley's brother. And I thought, well, is it now? I'm surprised she didn't remind us, you know. And uh, Joe Lynch's wife, Terry, whom I think you've spoken with a couple of times. So I called her and she said, yeah, I'm getting ready to fire her. You know, we're having problems. She's not showing and, you know, there's mm-hmm. something going on. And uh, I said, well, I'm going to call her. I called her and said, you know, surely, what's going on? You know, uh, you know, we missed you Oh, you know, and she was kind of groggy and, you know, all kind of just like not really oriented to what time it was or what day it was and proceeded into this diatribe about her back pain and how she's in a lot of pain and she had that. And then, uh, and this is five o'clock in the evening and wanting to know the doctor, maybe she had seen, you know, I said, well, who are you seeing? You know, where are you getting the painkillers? I didn't get a straight answer. And I tried to pin her down on who she had seen some orthopedists and she'd seen, you know, and I said, she asked for some names. I said, well, right here in Dundee, there's, you know, gave her a couple names of folks in our Dundee Medical Center and on and on and on. I don't remember now the exact link how she got into the conversation about the daughter, but that's when she let kind of kept talking and talking and went into this conversation about her daughter and grandkids and how this guy had beaten their daughter badly and broken bones in her face and on and on about, you know, to, to be effective. If it's the last thing I do, I'm going to take care of this guy. I'm going to get even with this guy. We have not been able to successfully prosecute him, you know, and I didn't know any details of her family. So 
you know, she went on and on. I said, well, this sounds kind of worrisome, Shirley, you know, and yeah, he's beaten my daughter before and, you know, and on and on and on. It's getting to be dinner. You know, this, this is more than a half hour conversation. I said, well, I really need to let you go. It, it, you know, it, it is meandered and meandered and, uh, you know, and I guess what bothers me about that conversation is that popped in my head as I was waiting at the Lahui Airport to come back to Omaha. That conversation was as clear as day as I was waiting in the airport. So to me, there was a reason why that conversation came. Because at that juncture, I didn't have many details. You know, mm-hmm. And initially, it took quite a bit to find out actually who was harmed. You know, Nobody wanted to talk to me to tell me but, you know, all the people were saying is there are two people dead. You know, so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because to me, it didn't register. It's Thursday. And I've said that over and over to several of you. Why Thursday? You know, I know you have to look at everybody. I know you're looking very extensively at Thomas and his games and his phone and all that. But in my mind, I was gone all week. Thursday is the only day she comes. So if they were after him, why Thursday? Now remember, at this point, Claire has no idea what the cops know and what they don't know. So she's telling them everything that she knows, which includes that she understands that the boyfriend had broken Kelly's jaw and that she had been hospitalized because of it. She also tells them that Shirley had sought an order of protection against the boyfriend and was willing to testify in court against him for the charges for the battery. Claire tells both officers that she is unaware of anyone other than Kelly's boyfriend that may have had an issue with Shirley. She says that I do know that Shirley had her tire slashed two weeks prior to the murders, and I know that Shirley thought it was the boyfriend who had done it. She adds, Watson and Yetz continue on trying to fill any gaps that they may have from all the other information that they've gotten from any other witnesses. So they ask her what time Shirley normally came to clean. Claire informs them that she usually came around 11 a.m. and would leave around 3. She tells them that Shirley had bad knees and a bad back and that sometimes she would come later and would be there when Tommy got home from school, which wasn't an issue because Tommy had been fond of Shirley. Watson then inquires from Claire whether or not she was aware if Shirley had ever brought other people to help her clean the home. Claire tells him that she's aware that Shirley had both of her kids, Jeff and Kelly, come help her on occasion to clean the home at times when they were living with her or were trying to help her out or vice versa, and also that a friend named Liz Stiles had come to the home on several occasions. There was one thing that she was abundantly clear about. And that was that, without question, Kelly knew exactly where she lived and what her address was. What Claire was saying, without saying it, was that Kelly's boyfriend knew exactly where they lived. She continues and goes on to tell them that she had a stern conversation recently with Shirley about her absences and her failing to call to let her know that she wasn't going to make it. She tells them that after the conversation, the last few weeks before the incidents, that the issue had subsided and Shirley was back on schedule. The cops then asked Claire to describe Shirley. Claire described Shirley as a coarse woman who didn't suffer fools, and that she happened to know a lot of lowlifes, and that it's those kind of people who are the types of people that would do something like this. Claire tells both Yetz and Watson that they need to look harder at Kelly's boyfriend. Watson and Yetz both assure her that they are looking very, very closely at the boyfriend. Now what Claire doesn't know and what they're not going to tell her is that at this point, they've already interrogated the boyfriend. And at first blush, it appears that he has a solid alibi. Now I can understand why they aren't telling Claire that they've already interviewed the boyfriend, but it's one of those things that I'll never, never come to grips with. I just think that the victim's families need to be kept in the loop as to exactly what's going on and exactly how much or how little progress is being made in the case. They then switch the subject to Claire's occupation 
asking her what she does for a living. She tells them that she is the program director for the fellowship program at Creighton University Medical Center. And it was her call whether or not a fellowship would be denied or withdrawn. They ask her if she can recall anybody that may have had an issue with her due to her job. She tells them that there was a man named Dwayne back in 2005 and that Dwayne was an angry person and that Dwayne had had a patient that he wanted Claire to sign off on a disability form due to the fact that his patient had high blood pressure. Claire refused to do it. And when she did, Dwayne became very, very angry. And ultimately, he had filed a complaint against her. She's unsure of whatever became of him. We had an add-on fellow who had a Honda CRD who um, is back in Ohio. And I think he ran the plates or, or checked. You know, I assume because I never heard anything back that, you know, I'd like to think that this fellow wouldn't have done something harmful to the family. But, you know, um, you just... The main thing that bothered me about him was his face somewhat resembled the artist's drawing that was initially in the paper. And uh, he had a Honda CRV, and, and he was tied very closely to the Islamic community in Omaha. And, and he was very cordial to me and by the time he left. But he, uh, and anytime you're in charge of something, you, not everybody is always happy, and he was an add-on because his program closed, and he really wanted to be an interventional fellow. And um, I, you know, I had to talk to him a few times about things that he needed to do to get ready for his board exams. So, you know, he sometimes Muslim men do not view women in charge very favorably. Mm-hmm. I don't know what your experience is. Yes, I've spent time over there, so yes, you know, I mean. and that's. Not true of all of them. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, our chairman of the department is a Muslim male, and he treats women, you know, Dr. Mohidin is, is, is very, is very. So, but I had some uncomfortable interactions with him, and, you know, when uh, Warner said, just bring anything or everything up, leave no stone unturned. He made me uneasy that I, I just felt like uh, he... He probably, I don't know, how, it's difficult to articulate. It just, you know, when you're around some people, they just make you a little uncomfortable. You know, he was kind of pushy, and he really wanted, when he came here from Ohio, he assumed that he would have a clear shot at the interventional fellowship, which is pretty competitive. I don't have, I am not in charge of that. I reminded him of that. Dr. Delcor is the program director for the intervention fellowship. So I would have to remind him that that was not my decision. That he was pretty pushy about what he wanted and what he wanted the program to do for him. He was very uh, gracious in offering his, his, you know, his, his religious upbringing, you know, Christian views of death are different than most different religious backgrounds. And being a devout Muslim, his view of things is different. Mm-hmm. You know, their view is just different. Yetz then asked Claire if she can recall a doctor named Michael Belenke who had been put on probation from the pathology residency program. Upon hearing Belenke's name, Claire looks at Yetz and tells her, oh yes, I'm quite aware of Michael Belenke. I know that Bill had the final say-so of him being removed from the residency program at Creighton, but I don't consider him to be a threat. As a matter of fact, Creighton has settled with him after he filed suit against them. The cops look at each other, and they move on. They then ask Claire if she has any idea where Blanky is now. She says she's not certain, but that she believes that he might be in British Columbia. Yetz and Watson at this point decide to ask nothing further about Michael Blanky, or anything else for that matter. But now, 
It's Claire's turn to ask some questions. Considering that it's been three weeks, she asks them if they've made any progress in her son's case. Both cops look at each other briefly, and then Watson informs her that they're unable to discuss the case with her, but that there are tips coming in every day. Claire asks, what kind of tips? Are they naming names? Watson responds, well, one example is that a tipster called saying that you bore some resemblance to Shirley Sherman. Claire looks at the cops, indignant at the comparison. You don't look anything alike, and I'm highly educated, whereas Shirley isn't. Yetz notes in her report that Claire failed to acknowledge any physical resemblance to Shirley Sherman. Well, I think that saying that she doesn't look anything like Shirley is acknowledging that there was no physical resemblance. Maybe that's just me, though. Claire then inquires when they're going to be getting their computers back because it's been weeks and they need them. Yetz informs her that she's already signed a release and that they will be released, except for the Xbox and a mini Mac. Claire does not appear thrilled by the lack of progress with the case, nor with the fact that they're refusing to give her any information. Yetz and Watson thank her and terminate the interview. As Yetz walks out of the house, she thinks to herself, well, I didn't really learn anything new from Claire as she echoed much of what has already been told to her and other officers by various witnesses. But one thing I do know is that Claire Hunter is a serious woman and that she will not hesitate in holding people accountable if she gets the sense that we are not doing everything in our power to find out who killed her child. This fact motivates an already motivated Linda Yetz to do more. On April 2nd, one of the things that has not occurred yet and which she most certainly did not discuss with Claire Hunter finally occurs. Linda Yetz is assigned to transport several items of forensic evidence to the University of Nebraska Medical Center Human DNA Lab. Yetz heads down to the crime lab and signs out the following potential DNA profiles from the crime lab secured freezer, which is being manned by Dennis Jackson of the evidence property unit. Two swabs from the interior and exterior door handles of the front storm door, two swabs from the interior and exterior handle of the main front door, two scraping slash swabs from under both the right and left hand fingernails of Shirley Sherman, two scrapings and swabs from under the right and left hand fingernails of Thomas Hunter, and an apparent hair lifted from the blade near the hilt of the knife that had been left in Thomas Hunter's neck. Now, one major difference between how the evidence was handled in Garcia, well, at least for the Hunter and Sherman case, as compared to the Gacy case, is that Omaha PD is absolutely fastidious in their handling of the evidence and in creating a chain of custody meaning that every cop that subsequently handles evidence after it is originally collected gives a thorough reporting of exactly what they did with each and every item of evidence that comes into their possession. Now, if you're sitting at home and you started Defense Diaries on Season 2 as opposed to Season 1, the Gacy tapes, we strongly encourage you to listen to Season 1 as you await new episodes to drop because we went to great lengths in describing just exactly what the hell a chain of custody is and why it's so damn important. Not just in this case, but in every criminal case. And as much as we'd love to repeat those, it's your favorite time, it's my favorite times here, we aren't going to do it. So you'll just have to listen to season one if you're a little fuzzy on what we're talking about here. But I digress. So Yetz takes the evidence from the property unit back up to the crime lab and proceeds to take pictures of both the front and back of each of the individual envelopes containing the evidence. She notes that each of the envelopes has been sealed with red evidence tape and has been initialed by each and every cop that has laid hands on them, which now includes Yetz. At 3.57 p.m., Yetz proceeds to jump into her cruiser, place the evidence envelopes next to her in the passenger front seat, and makes the drive nonstop to the human DNA lab, arriving at 4.10 p.m. She notes that those items of evidence never left her possession at any time, nor were they opened by her en route to the lab. Now, if you're curious if Yet's report is this detailed, 
recounting her every move with respect to this potentially absolutely critical DNA evidence, the answer is unequivocally yes. We are reading it verbatim. And if you're further wondering why in the hell she is spelling it out step by step, well, the answer is this. Defense lawyers. If when we receive these reports after we were retained, and if one of these profiles ends up being a match with our client, we will pour over these reports, which may seem benign on their face, but are incredibly important, looking for defects in the chain of custody. If Yet's report didn't detail where the evidence was located in her vehicle when she transported it, or if she failed to mention that she drove nonstop to the DNA lab, that leaves wiggle room for us as defense attorneys to grill her about her whereabouts and her handling of the evidence, wherein we're implying or possibly straight up accusing her of tampering with the evidence. But when she gives a blow-by-blow -blow of her every move, which is exactly how each and every cop that handles evidence is supposed to do it, she effectively negates our ability to question her about those particular pieces of evidence, with us having almost no chance of getting the evidence suppressed based on its mishandling. So when it seems like we are getting into the minutia a bit too much, well, now you know why. When Yetz walks into the lab, she is met by DNA lab tech Melissa Halegso, who would end up being the same lab tech throughout the entirety of the trial. And this occurs at 4.12 p.m. Yetz tells her that she removed these from the freezer and that they were sealed and they've remained sealed while in her custody. Yetz further explains what the evidence is and then leaves the potential samples with Halegso at 4.57 p.m. Five days later, on April 7th, Linda Yetz is informed by her sergeant that a man named Andrew Nelson had been the victim of a crime back on January 26th of 2008. At first, Yetz thinks to herself, okay, that's awful, but what does that have to do with Hunter and Sherman? Her sergeant quickly circles back and makes the connection. Apparently, a woman named Marcella S. had been a caregiver for Andrew Nelson, and she was alleged to have ripped him off by making unauthorized charges on his credit card, totaling over $2,500. Okay, Yetz thinks to herself, still not there yet. The sergeant continues. The odd thing is that the Nelson's home was a mere block away from the Hunter's residence, and they have a very similar address in that both house numbers are 303. Now, we won't be disclosing the rest of the address for obvious reasons. Nelson was of the belief that, in fact, he may have been the target of the Hunter Sherman killer, and that the killer simply got the addresses confused. Bingo. That was enough to pique Yet's interest, so she pulls the Nelson report of February 12th. In that report, it states that in July of 2007, that the Nelsons had been informed by their credit card company that somebody had been making unauthorized charges on their Visa credit card at various locations in the Omaha area, totaling around 2,500 bucks. Mrs. Nelson also noticed that her husband's priceless ring was missing from the residence as well. Deciding to do a little of her own detective work, Mrs. Nelson called Progressive Insurance, which was one of the unauthorized charges that was made on the visa, and inquired of them who, pray tell, had made the payment for insurance. Instead of being the total douchebags, as we would all expect, the agent from Progressive was kind enough to supply Mrs. Nelson with the name of the individual, which was, of course, none other than her husband's caregiver, Marcella S. The very next call that Mrs. Nelson makes was to Marcella to terminate her and to let her know that she would be calling the police immediately, which she did. Yetz then does some more digging into Marcella. She soon finds another police report about another theft of credit cards and jewelry, and also three reports of domestic violence between Marcella and her ex-boyfriend, a man named Adrian Lepore. This, all of a sudden, has turned into a bona fide lead. Yetz picks up the phone and immediately calls the Nelsons. They agree to speak with her regarding the possible connection 
between their case and the Hunter Sherman case. Yetz arrives at Nelson's home, and they invite her in. Mrs. Nelson dives right in, explaining that they hired Marcella about a year and a half ago, that she was a certified CNA, and that they had been impressed with her work initially. She then turns the conversation over to Adrienne Lepore, who she says she is familiar with because she has received reports that Lepore had been to their home on at least two occasions that she knows of, the first time being back in September of 2005. Mr. Nelson's friend, Michael, had informed him that he had found Adrian Lepore in the basement of the Nelson's home. And when he was asked who he was, that he stated that he was Marcella's friend. Michael then asked Lepore where Marcella was, and Lepore told him that she was in the bathroom. Michael could tell that they had been, quote, screwing around, end quote, in the basement. Mr. Nelson then tells Yetz that after he had been put to bed that evening, that he later heard Marcella screaming down in the kitchen. She then ran upstairs to let Mr. Nelson know that she was okay and that she had told Lepore to leave. Mr. Nelson wasn't having it. He fired her immediately. He said that he knew that Marcella then went to California to work for another family and that when she returned, they actually rehired her. Mrs. Nelson then told Yetz about the time that she went out to work in her garden and found Adrian Lepore seemingly hiding in her garden. She then asks him who he is, and he tells her that his name is Frank. While looking at this intruder in her garden, she recalls the description that her husband had given her about the man who had been in the basement during the first incident. She then asks the man if he is Adrian. He admits that he is. She asks him how he got there. He tells her that Marcella brought him when she came to work this morning. Mrs. Nelson tells him that he's not welcome and that he has to leave. Lepore refuses. After a short time and threats to call the police, Lepore finally relents and leaves. Mrs. Nelson then explains to Yetz that she and her husband were aware that Marcella and Lepore were using meth and they knew that Lepore had been arrested a couple of times for domestic violence. They felt that the credit card fraud was a direct result of the meth addiction. She was also aware that Lepore had slashed Marcella's tires recently, and she believes that Marcella made a police report to that effect. Yetz jots it all down, then asks if Marcella had made any threats when she had been fired the second time. Mrs. Nelson tells her no, but that she begged them not to fire her. Yetz nods that she understands, then asks why they believe that Lepore could be the guy responsible for the Hunter Sherman murders. They tell Yetz that when they heard the address of the Hunter's home, that they both had an eerie feeling overcome them. They knew that Adrian was a violent person, and they both believed that they could have been the attended target and that Lepore had just mixed up the houses. So when the composite sketch was released to the public, Mrs. Nelson believed that there was such a strong resemblance to Lepore it warranted a phone call to the police. Yetz thanks them both, jumps into her cruiser, and drives to the hunter's neighborhood. Yetz is armed with a photo array that contains pictures of 26 different men which she then proceeds to go to Dana Boyle's home. Dana Boyle answers, and Yetz shows her the photo array. Dana Boyle picks out the picture of Lepore and tells her that there is a definite resemblance to the stranger she saw in the neighborhood that day. But, she said, I don't remember him having that much gray hair. Yetz thanks her and leaves. Next, she goes to Mary Rommelfanger's home. Mary also answers the door, and Yetz hands her the array. Upon looking at the photos, Rommelfanger gasps audibly and begins crying. She needs to sit, she tells Yetz. They both take a seat on the couch. Once seated, Mary once again looks at the array and begins crying again, only this time even harder. Yetz asks her if she's okay. And Rommelfanger says yes. Rommelfanger points at Lepore's picture and tells Yetz that in her mind's eye that she would not have picked Lepore out of the lineup 
but that her subconscious kept thinking that this was the man she saw that day. Yetz thanks her and leaves, and then heads to Katie Swanson's house. Katie also answers the door and is shown the array. After a brief moment in reviewing the photos, Swanson says, quote, Oh, that guy, pointing at Lepore's picture. Wow, he bears a lot of resemblance to the party I saw, end quote. She says she's not sure if it was the same guy, but he did look a lot like the stranger she remembered seeing on that day. Yet, at the conclusion of all three of the interviews, individually had asked if each of the women would be willing to make a positive identification of Adrian Lepore, and none of them were confident enough to do so at this juncture. Yetz gets back in her cruiser and drives back to the station. On April 11th, Detective Scott Warner is aware of the buzz around the station regarding Adrian Lepore, and he is able to locate him in very short order. To his utter delight, Warner is informed that Adrian Lepore is currently being housed at the Douglas County Correctional Facility. Hot damn, doesn't get any easier than that, Warner thinks to himself. So at about 2 p.m., he heads over to the Douglas County Jail to have a sit with Lepore to ask him about his whereabouts on March 13th because he had checked with the jail and Lepore wasn't detained at that point in time. Could OPD have finally found its man? Find out on the next episode of Defense Diaries. Hey guys, quick shout out to all of our patrons, old and new. We love y'all so much. The support means so, so much to Darren and I. We're going to also be having a live stream event next week and we'll post in our Patreon all the details. And finally, to all of you, our beautiful listeners who give us some of your valuable time each and every week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Because without y'all, I'd just be an old man talking about an old case. Talk to you next time. Oh, hey there. You like true crime stories, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. Who doesn't? But I gotta admit, after a while all those stories of murder and heartache, well, they tend to go straight to my hips. So that's why I, Leroy Luna, have created a podcast called Excuse Me, That's Illegal, where we'll take a hardcore look at some softcore crimes. No TED Talks on Bundy here. The letters BTK won't be coming from these lips. Unless he had a brother that used to steal library books. Suppose I'd be willing to go balls deep into that one if that were the case. Anyways, you'll hear stories such as the Mad Pooper, a female jogger who wreaked havoc in a Colorado Springs neighborhood, using one family's front yard as her own personal dumping grounds. If this kind of content sounds like it's up your alley, excuse me, that's illegal, is available right now on all your favorite podcatchers. So come join me. I'll be right here waiting for you.